Father, I just wanna, just wanna thank you for the time of just being able to sing your praises together uh, as a church. Uh, Lord, I know for me that is so uplifting and encouraging to my soul. And so, Lord, thank you for just the means of grace it is to be able to do this every single week. And Lord, I pray right now as we get into your word uh, that, Lord, this would just be a time where, Father, you help us to see the goodness of your truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. I pray that you would help me to speak well from it. And Lord, I pray that as we get into John 5 and other scriptures this morning, that you would help us to understand how the entire Bible fits together into one cohesive, redemptive story. Help us to see that this morning, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So this morning, we're going to continue a sermon series we've been in through the summer called The Word of God, where we're studying what the Word of God is. And one of my goals through the first three weeks of this series has been to instill in all of us a very high view of the Bible. Uh, Last week, we talked about how the Word of God, the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, are infallible, meaning they cannot be wrong, and they are inerrant, meaning they are not wrong. That we trust the Bible and what it has to say about what truth is more than we trust our own minds, more than we trust our hearts or our feelings. And so this, that, that view of scripture is a very high view of the Bible. But there's one problem with having such a high view of the Bible. Yes, the Bible is infallible, and yes, it is inerrant, but we, those who need the Bible and use the Bible and read it and teach it and interpret it, but we are not infallible. We are not inerrant. We are very much fallible, errant human beings, and just like anything that is good, Scripture can be abused. The Bible claims authority on truth. So what happens when we use the Bible authoritatively, but we didn't read it right? What happens? Uh, This week, uh, we got a great example of this. Uh, When being asked about why immigration officials have separated hundreds of migrant families at the border who are either coming in illegally or trying to seek asylum, Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, he cited Romans 13. He cited Romans 13.1. He said, well, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, the governing authorities, have been instituted by God. Well, what the attorney general was doing was he was appealing to the authority of the Bible to defend his own authority and the decisions that the administration makes. And he was trying to demonstrate that these immigrants have violated the Bible. And therefore, he was defending the actions of the administration. Well, Romans 13 is absolutely God's word that we do believe is inerrant, it's infallible, it is authoritative, it does help us to understand how God uses governing authorities, but 
As you can imagine, Romans 13 has been abused in the past by governments to justify their authority to do what they want and justify unjust laws. So Jeff Sessions uses and applied Romans 13 in this situation, I believe, and I believe the way that he did it was misguided and an abuse of the Bible, but but let me explain why, because I think this leads perfectly into what I want us to talk about this morning. The problem with how Sessions read and applied Romans 13.1 is that he did the equivalent of trying to describe the appearance of a person by looking at just one hair follicle. You can't do it. But if you zoom out, you'll notice that that one hair follicle is a part of the whole appearance of the person. But to actually describe the appearance of the person, you have to zoom out and see it in context. And what Jeff Sessions was doing was attempting to preach a theology of government and authority by picking just one verse and not understanding how that one verse plays a part in constructing a whole theology of what the Bible says about government and authority and laws. In other words, Romans 13.1 is informed by everything else the Apostle Paul had to say in his letter to the church in Rome. It's informed by the rest of the Bible. It's informed by its historical and cultural context. It cannot be just universally applied by any government to justify whatever they want to do. And believe me, I do think God's word has a lot to say about how we should regard immigrants. And I think God's word has a lot to say about those who claim authority and how they use that authority in a God-honoring way. Just a quick aside for you, one of our elders, Joe Carter, has written several really good articles if you wanna be more informed about what's going on uh, at the border, and you can find those at the Gospel Coalition, at the ERLC, if you search in those websites. um, I commend those articles to you. But I'm not here just to criticize Jeff Sessions because I think Jeff Sessions has done something that probably all of us are guilty of at some point if we have ever read the Bible. I think it's something that is very common today. What he did was he treated the Bible like a list of sayings that can be applied in any context at any time when it's most convenient. Uh, Too often, I think we use the Bible to help our own agenda and not allow the Bible to shape our agenda. And this morning, I want to begin a series of messages within this larger series on the Word of God aimed at helping us to read our Bibles better. Because when we cherry pick Bible verses to suit our own agenda, we abuse the Bible and take something that is inerrant and use it in an errant way. And what I want to help us to understand this morning is how the Bible is put together and how all of the individual books and chapters and verses come together into one cohesive message. And why it's important that when we're reading the Bible, that everything is interpreted in light of that one message. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to do kind of an overall introduction to this one message of the Bible. And then in coming weeks, 
We're gonna drill down into specific issues and maybe even some difficult passages in the Bible. And we're gonna see how when we put it in light of that overall context, that overall message of the Bible, it helps us to understand how they were intended to be interpreted. So to start that, let's go to John chapter five. If you have your Bibles open to that. Because here's what's happening in John 5. Jesus is having a very similar conversation with some Jewish leaders who, in their reading of the scriptures, missed the main point. And because they missed the main point and they were teachers of the scriptures, I think you could say they were actually abusing the scriptures. And so let me give you a little context of John 5. Uh, Many Jews were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus was saying that he, in fact, was God. Jesus was claiming to be God. The Jewish leaders didn't like that and wanted to stone him for it. All right, so in response, what Jesus is doing in John 5 is he's listing off several witnesses who testify to his divinity. So we're gonna start in verse 37, John 5, verse 37, where Jesus will refer to the very word of God as a testimony to his divinity. So let's read this. John 5, starting in verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Look at this, verse 39. You, these Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures. Think Old Testament. You search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So in this encounter that Jesus has with these Jewish leaders, Jesus essentially tells the Jewish leaders that they have been misreading the scriptures their entire lives. Jesus says, if you would have read the scriptures right, you would have known that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. We see other places in the New Testament where Jesus makes this claim or other people make this claim. Luke 24 is a great example. In Luke 24, uh, it's after the resurrection of Jesus And Jesus appears to these people on a road headed to the town called Emmaus. 
And they were these people who were walking on this road to Emmaus were lamenting because Jesus had just died on the cross. But they are also talking about this rumor going around that Jesus had been risen from the dead. So Jesus appears to them and then he reveals himself to them. Look at this, Luke 24, verse 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is walking with them. He's open your Bibles. Let's go. I'm going to show you every place where I show up. It was the greatest Bible study of all time. John chapter one, verse 45, Jesus is calling his disciples to him to follow him. So he calls Philip. Philip goes and grabs his brother Nathaniel. Look at this, verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Or even Acts chapter eight, verse 35, you have Philip who is down and he encounters an Ethiopian and he sees that this Ethiopian is uh, reading from Isaiah and he asks him about it. Look at this, Acts chapter eight, verse 35, it says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, which was the prophet of Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, so what I wanna show you this morning is that the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation comes together to reveal to us the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the entire thing. Every passage of scripture must be read, interpreted, and taught in light of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm gonna do this morning. I'm, I'm, gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna preach the whole Bible. Okay, we're gonna start in Genesis. We're gonna go all the way through, all right? So I hope you got time, get comfortable. All right, but here's the thing. Uh, we're gonna start in Genesis, go all the way through. So actually, let me just warn you, I am gonna fire hose you, all right? Because I'm not gonna go long. All right, I am gonna fire, so don't take notes. Don't worry about it. I post my transcripts on our website, the audio recordings there. Don't worry about that. You can go there and get those. But I do wanna show you this overall storyline in scripture. Okay, so Genesis chapters one and two. God creates man and woman. He creates them to be good. He calls them good. They're joyful. They're holy. They're righteous. They live in God's presence. All right, that's creation. But we don't go far in the Bible, just Genesis three, until we see that we were enticed to reject God. Instead of trusting God, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we reject his word. And so here's what God does. Because we've done that, we sin against him. God expels us from his presence. We are out of the garden. And here's why. God is a holy, righteous God and a holy and righteous God cannot be in the presence of unholy, sinful people. So we are no longer good. We are no longer holy and righteous, and we are now subject to death. But immediately in Genesis chapter three, in verse 15, we see God's grace. All right, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's Latin for the first gospel, the first time the gospel shows up in the Bible. God promises that one day an offspring of the woman, Eve, is gonna be raised up and is gonna crush the head of the serpent who led 
mankind astray. So this is what God says to the serpent in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that. In other words, God was going to embark on a plan to save his people from their sin so that they could live in his presence again. And the rest of the Bible is going to tell that story. So let's fast forward to Genesis chapter 12. God calls this guy named Abraham out of nowhere. Just says, Abraham, I'm gonna use you for something big. This is what he says, Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. I want you to see this. Now the Lord God said to Abram, who's Abraham, go from your country where you're at and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's gonna be Canaan, the promised land, all right? I'm gonna make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And look at this, in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so I want you to see this. Here, God preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham. And you might be saying, I don't see it. You're gonna see it in just a second, hang on. God promises Abraham that he, from this promised land that he's gonna lead him to, is going to turn Abraham into this huge group of people who are gonna be blessed by God, meaning they'll be reconciled to God. And that once that group is reconciled to God and blessed, they are gonna fan out and go bless the nations, telling them how they can be reconciled to God. So let's go through the rest of Genesis. We see Abraham's, all of a sudden, his extended family turns into the great nation of Israel. They become the Jewish people. And then in Exodus, these people find themselves no longer in the promised land, but in slavery in Egypt. But God, in continuing to demonstrate that he's on a mission that he promised back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, rescues them from their slavery in Egypt and brings them back to the promised land. He puts them on a journey back to the promised land. During this journey, they make a stop. It's at Mount Sinai because God had to deal with a problem. It's the original problem of the garden. God wanted to be fully reconciled with his creation. He wanted to be able to be in their presence and them to be in his presence. But we have the same problem. These people were unholy. They were not righteous. And when we say God is holy, what we mean is he's set apart. He can't be in the presence of unholiness. So here's what God does at Mount Sinai. He gives these people the law and he gives them the sacrificial system. The law made it clear how these people were to live. Do this, do this, 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 do this, 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 this. And if you do all of that, then you will be holy. The sacrificial system was put into place to make atonement for when these people didn't live according to the law, right? Which was multiple times a day, right? So we needed a sacrificial system to do that, right? So what would happen is God would then be with his people but he would be in the tabernacle, which was this tent that contained his presence. And he could be there as long as his people kept the law or had their sins atoned for when they broke the law. All right, so you have Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through. 
we get the Old Testament law codified on paper, put down, written by Moses. The Jews finally get back to the promised land. We go through Joshua and Judges. But again, we have the same problem. These people were an unholy people who constantly yo-yoed back and forth from keeping the law and, and doing the sacrificial system when they didn't keep the law to completely disregarding the law and the sacrificial system. So they just kept going back and forth. And so what would happen is when they were keeping the law, God would bless them. And when they weren't keeping the law, God would punish them, usually in the form of sending an enemy nation in to invade them. So we hit the history books in your Bible, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. All of this inconsistency, all right? Enemy nations coming in, keeping the law, not keeping the law, caused the people of Israel to believe that they needed a king. God wanted to rule his people just through his word, but the people of Israel thought, no, we need a king, so God allowed it. So they first got King Saul. He was a train wreck. Then we go to King David. King David is described as a king who was after God's heart. He sinned in magnificent ways, no doubt, but he was a good king. And God chose to use David in a similar way that he is using Abraham. He makes a covenant with David and tells David that there will be another king over Israel in David's family line. But this king will be perfect and his kingdom will last forever. We see that in 2 Samuel verse seven, chapter seven, verses 12 to 13. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so, so God promised Abraham he would turn him into this huge group of people who will be blessed by God and sent to bless the nations. And here, God promises David that one of his offspring will be the king and the ruler of those people. So of course, that wouldn't come for a while. The next king was Solomon. Uh, Solomon started good. He built a great temple for God that replaced the tabernacle where all the sacrificial system was. But after Solomon's reign, Israel split into two. Uh, you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. All of the northern kingdom's kings were evil, did not follow God and did not lead their people to follow God. A few of Judah's kings, the southern kingdom, were good, but most of them were bad as well and did not follow God. All right, so Israel was in this consistent place of always rejecting God's word, always doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God gives his word and they just disregard it. And this is kind of the, what Israel was consistently doing. So we go into the prophets, many of which happen simultaneously with the history books of the Old Testament. And we learned that what the prophets were doing were warning God's people. Y'all need to stay faithful to the law. Y'all need to stay faithful to this sacrificial system. If you don't, God is going to bring punishment. His wrath will be upon you. If you don't, God's going to kick you out of the promised land. You won't be able to be in his presence anymore. Well, the people didn't heed their advice and they were eventually defeated. God let the Babylonians come in, 
destroy Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground and carry all of them out of the promised land. God kicked them out of the promised land, removed his presence. Same thing we see happen in the garden. Get to Ezra and Nehemiah and we realize that, well, eventually they're, are allowed to come back to the promised land and they rebuild the temple again. I mean, we see God's consistent faithfulness here. He wants this to work. He wants this to work. He wants to be able to be with his creation and reconciled. He has not abandoned his plan to save them. But this was Israel. They couldn't get their act together to consistently and faithfully live according to God's law. They were an unholy people, and no matter how hard they tried, they could not be holy enough to be reconciled to God. And things go silent. There's about 400 years between your Old Testament and your New Testament where these people did not hear from God. I mean, they had the scriptures. They believed this this promise to Abraham would eventually come true and this promise to David would eventually come true that one day a Messiah would come and, and, and establish God's kingdom. But it went silent for generations. In fact, during this time, Rome came in and took over the promised land. So they were still there in the promised land, but they were under the rule of Rome. Would this Messiah ever come? And then one day, an angel appears to the Virgin Mary and says, he's here. He's in your womb, conceived of the Holy Spirit. I know that blows your mind, but he's there. And Jesus, this this Messiah's name will be Jesus, who is in the line of David, is born and begins his ministry on earth. He's 100% God, he's 100% man. He is the son of God. But see, Jesus was not the Messiah that the Jews were expecting. The Messiah that the Jews were expecting, that, that king who would come in the line of David, promise of David, what they were expecting is this guy will come and kick Rome out. And he will establish our kingdom as the Jewish nation. But Jesus did not come here to liberate Israel from Rome. He came to deal with the original problem. How does an unholy, sinful people be reconciled to a holy, righteous God? The law was the playbook, but it was too heavy, too burdensome. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. He says this, listen, I've come to deal with that problem. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill it. This is how Jesus will be the one to reconcile a holy God to an unholy people. He will live his life in complete obedience to the law and therefore deserve the blessing of God, not the wrath of God. But instead of enjoying that blessing from God, he would willingly offer himself as the ultimate and final sacrifice to atone for the sins of all the people. He would go to the cross on behalf of God's people and pay the penalty for their sin, for their law-breaking, satisfying the wrath of God on them and effectively ending the sacrificial system. 
And then what he would do is he would credit his fulfillment of the law to God's people, therefore making them a holy people who can now be reconciled to God, effectively removing the burden of the law. Jesus solves the problem, not by lowering God's standards of holiness, but by cleansing God's people through his blood and then making them holy through his righteousness so that they can be reconciled to God. The the curtain in the temple that separated God from his people is torn in two because now God can be present with his redeemed people. Jesus would inaugurate the kingdom of God Not by dealing with Rome, but by dealing with sin. And after he was raised from the dead, verifying his defeat of sin and death, Jesus would gather his people, whom he just reconciled to God, and he gives them a mission. I want you to look at this. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Look at what Jesus says. Hey, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You know what that means? Number one, you remember the promise to Eve? I'm the offspring of Eve. You know what I just did on the cross? I just crushed the head of the serpent. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You know that promise to David about the king who will last forever? That's me. I sit on that throne and here is my first decree as king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Holy Spirit and the Son, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? The group of people that God had promised to Abraham, who would be blessed by God, reconciled to God, and then also a light to the nations, was here. Jesus was now sending them to the nations from the promised land, just like he told Abraham he would do. This is the launch of the church as we know it today. The church is comprised of everyone who has believed in Jesus to be reconciled to God and submit to him as king. They are the group of people promised to Abraham who would be the light to the nations. And Jesus says that we are to go to the nations. And when the job is done, when the gospel has gone to all of the peoples of the world, then Jesus would eventually return and establish his kingdom in full for all of eternity. And so the book of Acts records that initial spread of the church. And we have the epistles of the New Testament, these letters written to churches, giving instructions on how to do ministry. And the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of those letters that we have in our New Testament. And he was the one who was specifically charged to be the first to take the gospel beyond Israel to the Gentiles. And it is the Apostle Paul who helps us to understand how this whole story, how the whole Bible is truly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so to to land this plane... I want to show you a passage from Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9. Look at this. Paul writes this. He says, Know then that it is those of faith, all right? 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's talking about you. It's those who have been reconciled and blessed by God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Time out. The scripture, knowing that the original plan was to justify the Gentiles and the Jews through faith in Jesus Christ, all right? Seeing, foreseeing that, look at this, verse eight, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quoting Genesis 12 now, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, you and me, followers of Jesus, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Right? I I told you that God preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham in the 12th chapter of your Bible. But the point is this. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, God has been on a rescue mission to reconcile his creation to himself so that he could dwell with them. And that plan was always through Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to it. The gospels tell us the story of Jesus' life. The New Testament reflects on Jesus, the gospel and the mission he's given the church. Every single verse in scripture must be taught, interpreted, and read in light of this story. This is what the Bible is about. It's not a book of sayings. It is a true story of God's redemptive plan to be reconciled to his creation. And we are a part of this story because we have the same charge God gave Abraham and that Jesus gave the church. Go be a light to the nations. Tell them how one is reconciled to God in and through Jesus Christ. And so I'm way out of time. I wish I could keep going with all of the implications of this truth. But here's what I wanted to leave you convinced of today, and that's this. The Bible is about Jesus. Every verse is about Jesus, and we have to interpret it in light of Christ. And so over the next uh, few weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some specific passages and see how putting them within this larger redemptive context helps us to know how to apply them today. So we're gonna do that for a little bit. But however, let me talk specifically about next week. Next week's an important week. Joe Carter is gonna be preaching for us and and everyone needs to be here, okay? Because what he's going to do is he's going to help us to understand how the Bible was compiled into the canon that we have today. I'm arguing today that this collection of 66 books is united as a whole into one story. Well, how did those 66 books come together? Well, be here next week as Joe teaches us on that. But this morning, you know, I cannot think of a more appropriate response to seeing that the whole Bible is about Jesus than coming to the table that's right in front of me and partaking of the bread and wine. 
Um, Jesus commands us as the church to come together often, break bread, drink wine as a, as a way of remembering what he did on the cross so unholy people like us could be reconciled to a holy God. So we take bread and we break it. And that symbolizes the broken body of Jesus when he allowed his body to be broken on our behalf so that we would not have to take on the wrath of God. And we take the cup of wine, grape juice for us, and we drink it. And we are reminded of the shed blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin and makes us holy. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, what I wanna invite you to do is I want you to invite you to come to the table and I want you to do it in joy and I want you to be reminded that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are holy, you are welcome in God's presence and you are a part of God's people. No matter how bad your week went, that because of the blood of Jesus and the righteousness that's credited to you, you are welcome in the presence of God. I want you to come forward to the table and I want you to celebrate that this morning. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not sure what you believe yet, I wanna ask you not to come forward, but sit in your seat and, and pray and ask God to show you if this is all true. Ask God to show you that your joy and your life is found in putting your faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you wanna talk about that with someone after the service, let me know. I'd be happy to spend some time with you. But I'm gonna pray for us. And then after I'm done praying, you can come up when you're ready, take a piece of cracker and a, some juice, and you can go back to your seat and we'll end our time in some singing. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning as we sit here looking at your word, Father, I pray that everyone in this room who knows you, who has placed their faith in you, in Christ, Lord, would be encouraged by who they are. Lord, as we read through the Old Testament, we read of a group of people who constantly yo-yoed back and forth from being faithful to not being faithful, to being blessed by you to not being blessed by you, trying their best to keep the law. And Lord, I, I know when I look at my life, that's, that's how I am. And Lord, I know that so many of us can be so discouraged because we feel like we're constantly failing. Perfection is just too heavy of a burden to carry. And so Father, would you encourage your people this morning with the truth of Jesus Christ? Would you encourage your people this morning with the fact that you have always had this plan since the days that Adam and Eve first sinned? not to weigh us down with the law, but Lord, to lift us up through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, encourage your people this morning 
that if they have placed their faith in you, that they are holy and that, Lord, you desire to be with them. You're not annoyed. You're not frustrated. You're not about to cast them all out. But in Christ, you have welcomed them into your family and into your kingdom, never to be cast out again. And so, Lord, as the people come forward to get the bread and the wine, Lord, I pray that you would encourage their souls with the truth of the gospel this morning. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you or they're just unsure of what they believe, Lord, would you just open their hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ? Help them to believe. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ who has rescued us.